0: Hey everybody, and welcome to Finding Weird, a show where we explore what it is that floats our boats, tickles our fancies, and makes us wonderfully weird. My name is Eric, and today we're going to talk a little bit about thinking errors, or the fancier term, cognitive distortions, and the impact that they can have on our day-to-day experience of the world. I took a list from the internet, no, not from BuzzFeed, of 16 common thinking errors And we'll outline what they entail, and I'm going to bet that you'll probably recognize some of the common barriers to a more positive mindset. Stay tuned. This actually might be my version of Pokemon, because I'm probably going to catch them all. Okay, let's get into this list here. Like I said, there's going to be 16 different thinking errors here, and I'll try to give some examples from my own life of how they might apply to me. The first one on the list is all or nothing thinking, polarized thinking, or what we like to also say as like black and white thinking. So the way this manifests as not being able to see the shades of gray in a situation. So you're always thinking about things in the extremes. So something is either amazing or it's absolutely horrible. These are the situations where we think about ourselves as we're either 100% successful or we're 100% a failure. We know in reality that that's not true, right? That's why this is a thinking error. I struggle with this one when it comes to the podcast. I think that I have to be either 100% the best podcaster that there ever was or this is a failure. And it's something I have to remind myself each week as I'm making an episode that just because I may do something differently or I may flub up a word or, in this week's example, I may be, uh, you know, releasing, uh, you know, a day or two later than I really wanted to. Uh, I have to remember that there are things that come up and there are shades of gray to every situation. Just because I release an episode late doesn't mean that I'm the world's worst podcaster. I hope. Number two is overgeneralization. This thinking error is where you get the response of something. Uh, the example they give here is like a student may get a C on their report card and so they think that they are just an idiot. This is a very common one that we hear in children when they have something go wrong. My daughter, who's only four, is just learning these things and she was watching before we started her in gymnastics. She was watching the, uh, U.S. world, uh, qualifications. And I turned it on thinking it would be motivating for her to see these people who are doing it at such a high level. And she immediately said, well, I can't do what they're doing, and so there's no way that I'll ever be able to be a gymnast. Luckily, fast forward, and once we got her into the class, it only took that one class really where she came out and said, you know what, I'm getting better and I can do this. So she had to kind of prove it to herself. And that's something that you and I need to do as well. Because, again, this goes with that all-or-nothing thinking. If it's only can be one way or the other, then just because you've had one bad experience, you start to think that you're always going to have bad experiences. A lot of times this can come up in relationships. It can come up in trying to get new jobs or trying new things. And here on the podcast, we are all about trying new things. And I hope one of the messages that my guests and myself have really put forward to you is that it's okay to fail. Failing forward is what we hope for, right? We want to make sure that when we do have something not go our way, that we learn from that experience, that we don't have this overgeneralization where we then start to shy away from new experiences because we just assume that everything is going to go badly. Okay, number three, and this is something that I can do, especially when I'm getting constructive feedback at times, but it's called the mental filter. This cognitive distortion is where we may ignore the whole or entire message of something because we pick apart that one negative piece of information that we hear. A lot of times we talk about trying to use compliment sandwiches where you may say a really great thing about someone and then you give them the feedback that might be more constructive and then end on a good note. Someone who's having a really hard time with the mental filter thinking error is going to stick to that middle piece. They're going to take that one thing and they're going to run with it. So this is something that I think comes up a lot, and they use the same example I would, which is when you're in a relationship and you are providing feedback to your partner, you guys may be going back and forth about how something needs to be better or someone needs to be doing things a little differently. And sometimes we get caught up and we take that one thing, right? And sometimes we're even the ones pushing the buttons to cause that one thing. Uh, You know, I, I, I don't know, talking about... Um, you know, having an argument and talking about cleaning or things like that and the other, and then looking and being like, well, but you have to realize that this is the way your mother keeps house. Yeah. Uh, if you say something like that, it's probably okay for murder. I'm just saying, please don't kill anybody. Okay, so the next one is actually called disqualifying the positive for number four. And this is where you decide that you do hear the positive. You're not just outright saying, no, I'm only hearing the negative. You're hearing the positive, but you just completely reject it. And so you may say that uh, any compliment that you get is somebody trying to get something from you. Or that somebody is only telling you you did a good job because they have to, that you didn't actually earn that. And so you just say, well, uh, that isn't really me. That's not something I should uh, internalize. When in reality, that person may be providing that feedback because you have done a really, really great thing. And so accepting the compliment is really kind of a difficult thing. Uh, I know I struggle with it. Sometimes I'll read a review on the podcast or somebody will tell me something at work. And I really just kind of question if they're really being honest with me or if maybe they're just trying to make themselves feel good or something like that. Um, and so I can definitely struggle with this one. Number five, we all do it. Jumping to conclusions or thinking that we can read each other's minds. I am one to pre-plan conversations due to my anxiety and due to depression and things, and so I, I rehearse a lot. And I can actually get myself so worked up in the planning of a conversation that I've already jumped to conclusions about what that person may say, especially when it comes to confrontation, So I will jump to conclusions ahead of time that I already know what this person is thinking. I already know what they're going to say. I already know the meaning behind the words that they haven't even gotten out of their mouth yet, but I just seem to know better. And if you've heard me talk about anything related to anxiety, we know that anxiety tells us things are going to be way worse than they are. And so a lot of times when we jump to conclusions, we are already anticipating something that probably 90% of the time doesn't happen. And so we really have to be careful with ourselves that we don't get too far ahead of the game and that we actually give people the space to say what they're really thinking. All right, number six is also part of jumping to conclusions, but this is the uh, fortune-telling side of this. So this is, I guess, related to what I said, but a a little different of just like we don't have any information. We have no evidence, and yet we hold these things, these conclusions, to be 100% true. This is uh, the example they give is someone who may be thinking that they'll never find love or never find a happy relationship only because it hasn't been found yet. And so we can kind of, again, overgeneralize, so related to the one earlier, and we can say that uh, this is something that's just never going to happen which then also ties back into all or nothing thinking. So you can see how we get into this pattern where these thinking errors start to add up and they really start to work together in this kind of uh, synergistic way to make us think that things are way different than they are. Number seven is magnification, or the better term that probably a lot of us have heard is catastrophizing. This one is a bread-and-butter one for myself with anxiety. I can go into a situation, jumping to conclusions, already fortune-telling that I know what's going to happen, and what I think is already going to happen is enormous. I am already thinking that the world's worst thing is going to happen and that there's nothing I can do about it. On the flip side, there is the opposite thinking error uh, that goes along with this, which is minimization. This is someone who may decide to minimize that positive, like we talked before, that you may disqualify that and minimize it because it's not actually such a big thing. Some people will confuse this with being humble. And so they believe that they're trying to be humble and they don't allow themselves to accept the compliment or award or something like that that's been given And they minimize that situation and not allow themselves to feel the full happiness of the moment. Number eight is emotional reasoning. This is where we talk, we talk a lot about in, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy about there being the difference between thoughts, feelings and actions. With emotional reasoning, this is where the mind tries to tell you because you're feeling a certain way, that's the way the situation is. So when someone may say, man, I'm being overly emotional about this, they're only thinking about how that situation makes them feel, and it makes it really hard then to transition to action. And a lot of times we may turn off that logical side of our brain that may be trying to tell us that the situation is differently than we may be feeling in the moment. For me, this goes a lot to situations like uh, where I'm out in public and I'm, you know, I, I know that the people in public honestly are not thinking about me. I know that the people I'm walking by or seeing, um, they don't know me. They don't know anything about me. But I will have these emotional thoughts of anxiety that there's judgment coming from them, um, depending on the way I'm sitting or sometimes the especially when I'm eating, uh, that there may be people who are watching the way I eat or what I eat um and so sometimes with my anxiety i'll catch a glance uh out of the corner of my eye and and it just starts these stirred up thoughts of is this, is this person thinking about me they probably are if you're really uncomfortable um and so i i think that because i feel this feeling that that's just the way this the situation may be and that and that's just not correct number 9 is something we love at hospital because we get to kind of say it the way we do, but uh, it's using should statements. These are situations where we talk about what we should or ought or must do. So a lot of times we'll be reflecting on something that didn't go our way, and we'll say, "Well, I should have," or "I ought to have." The the reason why we like it at the hospital is because we say to people, you know, you you need to be careful that you're not shooting all over yourself. And honestly, that stuck with me. Um, I don't want to shoot all over myself. Uh, you know, I'm already have an anxious tummy. And so, you know, I don't want that to happen. Uh, and so I, I try to avoid these when I can. But I think this is a very common one for us because expectation can be. Really hard for us when we're when we're not having a good time, when we're anxious about the future, or we're depressed about what's happened. Um, a lot of times we start replaying these moments in our mind, and so we say, "Man, I should have, I ought have. And so we remember that we we need to live in the now, and the now is where the action takes place. So we can think about what we should have done, or what we ought to do, or what we feel like we have to do. But by living in the moment, we actually can decide what we want to do and what we feel might be most advantageous for us in the moment. Number 10 is labeling and mislabeling. This one is a really, really hard one. So again, it goes back to that characterization of the the overgeneralize, right? So this is where we take something and we may say, uh, well, I am... Capital D depressed. And I am a depressed person. And because I have depression, these are the ways that I should. See, again, that comes up. These are the ways that I should be acting or these are the ways that I should be approaching life. We get these messages from all sorts of places. So it may come from interactions that we have with others for good or ill. We may be in a relationship with someone who is not supportive of us and they're calling us an idiot or they're calling us stupid. Or they're calling us fucked up. And these are the situations where we say, okay, well, I guess I am, you know, capitalized, fucked up. So now I can act a certain way or I'm going to respond in a certain way or not respond because I feel like I've been labeled a certain way. Because I work in the hospital, this comes up a lot. There are a lot of people who are coming into the hospital experience and they are hoping to get an idea of what that label might be. And one of the things that I I always talk to my patients about is that the label that the hospital provides as a diagnosis, we we like to say that they're temporary or they're triage diagnoses because we are looking at somebody at a small, tiny part of time. I, I get to see people for a few days at most. And so trying to tell someone that they are this or are that, it can really get very rooted into identity and identity as we talked about in our earlier episodes is a very, very important thing. And so we really need to be careful with the labels we put on ourselves and the labels that we put on each other. Think about that the next time you're talking to someone, you know, and you're, you're commenting, you know, are you giving yourself that label? Are you giving them that label? Try to see if you can avoid that if you can. Number 11 is another interesting one. So this one is called personalization. This is where someone may take a situation that is unrelated to them, or only slightly related to them, and they attribute blame in terms of what happens. This goes to situations like divorce, where kids will blame themselves and say they're the reason for their parents' divorce. When in reality, the reasons for something like that in a separation can be extremely complex and sometimes not even related to the children at all. This is a really hard one um, for me. I think that, uh, oh, one of the things I've always said, and this is absolutely like the anxiety not rooted in reality brain talking, but I think of myself as coming in at the end of an era. I will come into a situation and everything's been really great. So I, I honestly, I take my, uh, current work situation. I came into a team that was like solid, concrete. They were together. They, they were so strong as a team. And I came into this and I was like, I am just blessed to be a part of this team. And within two years, that team is dismantled and people are elsewhere. And there's like a couple people left. There is a part of me that says, I came into this and because I came into this, it changed. And I have other reasons for that. I, you know, other situations have happened where I've gone into college programs and had the program end the minute I get into it, uh, things like that. But that would be an example of personalization. In reality, I am not important enough to the world. Uh, to completely wreck things uh, like Wreck-It Ralph. That, that's just not true. And so it's something I have to battle when I go into a situation and I go, man, I can't believe this is ending right as I got started. The next one is number 12, and that is control fallacies. So a control fallacy, they say, manifests in one of two beliefs. One, that we have no control over our lives, and therefore we're the victims of fate and destiny or that we are in complete control, because of that, we're responsible for everything that happens. This is kind of a more um, active version of personalization. For someone saying that if they are in control, then they are the reason why things happen. So it's not just, uh, I can be blamed for this. But it's, I had control, and this is the way I controlled this, and I messed up the way my mother felt. I messed up the way my father felt. I messed up the way that relationship went, because it was all my fault and all my control, and I messed it up. It's a huge piece of guilt. And then, obviously, that that flip side is that there's no control, and we are helpless victims. This one... Is really, really hard for me. It is a very, very common fallacy. And especially when we are in new trauma and new depression and new anxiety, the way we feel about things can be that we have no control. One of the big things for me, I, I love talking about the hopeful nature of situations, trying to find the positive ways to get through a situation and I like to focus on this area of control because action is very, very, very strong. It's one of the best ways to change our perspectives. It's one of the best ways to challenge what we're going through is to be able to give action. When you have depression and you have anxiety, those disorders steal your action. They steal your ability to find the energy to make things happen. I know because I deal with it every single day. I wake up and there's something I should have done. Here I go again. And it just drives me to believe that I can't. And so I have this issue with this where I have to remind myself that the time is now. The chance for me to take action is now. I may not always take that action and that's okay. I'm responsible for where my fate goes. Am I in control of every situation? Absolutely not. Am I responsible or in control of everybody else? Absolutely not. But if I want something to change in my life, it's up to me to make that change. Going with that is number 13, which is the fallacy of fairness. This is where we can get tied up And it's just not fair. This can potentially go back to that feeling of being a victim of fate, that the world is supposed to be a place that is equal to everyone. And we we know, unfortunately, that that's not true. Some people do get experiences and opportunities and things that we don't or will not ever get. And so we can get ourselves caught up in this kind of magical thinking that the world should be different right There's that word again that the world is is supposed to give us a fair deal. and that's not always the case. So try not to get hooked up in the in the fairness of things. number 14 is the fallacy of change. This is where we may expect others to change. This is where we get back into that control right that we can convince someone, To be different. This is actually popularized a lot in culture, whether it be through comedians or sitcoms or or, or things like that, where there's just enough pressure that if we can put that on people, they're going to completely change, that they're going to become a different person. We know that, you know, objectively research would say that people don't change just because there's enough peer pressure from the outside. We can be extremely staunch in our beliefs and our identities, and getting us to change a lot of times happens from within. And so thinking that you're going to be able to um, talk your spouse into being a wonderful person when historically they've been horrible, thats it's really the odds are stacked against you. And so you have to realize that, again, you don't always have that kind of power And so you may be in a situation where you have to remember what you can change and what action you can take. And you can make suggestions, right? I think my wife is constantly telling me that there are ways that I could better help around the house or be a better father and things like that. And these are all wonderful suggestions. And as she brings these up, it then prompts self-reflection in me and affects my desire to change. So again, it's not that she has the power to change me. It's that she has the power to illuminate something and then I can decide if I want to make that change for myself. Number 15 is always being right. If you know me, uh, in personal life, yep, you've probably had at least one experience with me where I have, uh, fought hard to always be right. This is something that I uh, struggle with in terms of being a perfectionist and thinking that I have to do things better, um, or that I, again, should be doing things better than those around me. Um, this is a common one, uh, as, as they relate it back to the imposter syndrome. And that's something with podcasting that's really come up is, am I, um, an expert enough? Do I know enough Am I able to accurately represent what I am putting out in a podcast? And a lot of times I f- struggle with that. I may be experiencing something completely different, and I may be explaining it really badly. Um, and so there's this constant fear that I am letting down others by not presenting a situation in the way that might help them. I need to go back and remember that it's not on me. I'm, I'm presenting the information as best that I can, and hopefully there's something that will stick with you. But ultimately, whether you take something from this list or you decide to sit down and think about some of these thinking errors in your own life, that's up to you. That's not something I can control. And so I have to be really careful with getting caught up and always being right. I'm human. I'm fallible. We all are. There are going to be times where we're just not right, and I think allowing our egos to to take a step back and stop arguing for us that we are the smartest person in the room, I think can really be helpful. And the final one is the heaven's reward fallacy as they put on here. They talk about this one being the, I am going to suffer. And because of my suffering, because of the hard work I put in, because of all of the bad things that I've been through, then I'm going to be rewarded for this. And the hard part about this is that this definitely is a distortion. Sometimes we suffer, and it's not because we deserve a reward. Sometimes we just suffer. Life can be part suffering. And so we need to remember that we have to be responsible for ourselves in terms of how much sacrifice we are willing to make in our lives. There's nobody that's going to come and say, you know what, you worked all of those extra hours. You stayed up when no one wanted you to, so you are automatically going to get this promotion. You are automatically going to see this. We see this in movies. We see this in TV. We see this in our own lives all the time, that we may sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice, and that other person still gets what we wanted. And so we get so angry and our resentments go up and up and up because we feel like we, again, we should have been given that and that the expectation is that we are entitled to that. I think that's a really big thing that I've been trying to work on in the last maybe year, year and a half, is that if I watch out for what I feel like I'm entitled to, or I watch out for where my expectations go, the more safe I am with my expectations, the more safe I end up being with what happens and the outcome. I've stopped being as disappointed because I haven't set up these jump to conclusion entitled things that because I do this, then this will happen. I've worked on reminding myself that I'm going to work hard, and I am going to sacrifice, and I'm going to do the things that I feel are appropriate for a given situation. And these things may happen, but they aren't guaranteed. And so I think just by kind of uh, keeping my expectation under control, um, I keep myself from having my hopes dashed. And that's something that has really helped me uh, keep a positive interaction with the world around me and the people that are here um, and kind of made me just happier overall. All right, so after that list, we obviously need some dad jokes of the week. What do you call two small coins that get nudged? Well, obviously, that's a paradigm shift. What do you call an acid with a bad attitude? Amino acid. And I just want to apologize to everyone in terms of my attitude I just I have to let you know that due to coronavirus, I'm actually just trying to stay negative. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone, for being here for episode twenty one of Finding Weird. That's right. Our podcast can now get really drunk. I don't. Know. If you have any feedback questions or you just want to share about your own stinking thinking just email me at findingweirdpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to hear more of our episodes, you can head over to the website at findingweird.buzzsprout, B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T.com. You can follow me on Instagram at findingweirdpodcast and Twitter at findingweird, where you can see podcast updates, people that I'm following and interacting with, and get a glimpse into my random mind with dad jokes or random puns. Make sure that you're liking our Facebook page, Finding Weird Podcast, and join the Facebook group, Finding Weirdos, where you can participate in our growing community of weird and not-so-weird folks. Again, a lot of our interviewees actually join the group and can be reached there for more info. Please hit them up. They're fun. If you happen to already be listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave me a review. It's an easy way to get a shout out on the podcast. And it, let's be honest, it makes me look really cool. So I really appreciate it. Uh, and also just to remind you guys, uh, and challenge you, if you choose a funky username when you're putting in your review, I have to read it out loud. If you're enjoying the podcast, or you just want to have some pity on my wife and child for living with me, you can donate to the show by going to www.buymeacoffee.com slash findingweird. Once there, there are monthly supports that start at just a dollar, or you can click the actual support tab to give a one-time gift of a coffee, or three, or five. I recently got a donation from my gym bro, Chris, who... After she called and we talked about what buttons to push and things like that, uh, she actually was willing to buy me a cup of joe. So, Chris, thank you very much, and hopefully now you know how to do it so you can sign up to be a member and continue buying me coffee. Thanks. Thanks. Make sure if you're trying to find these things that you use the link tree, which is in the notes, you click on that and it'll take you to everything. You'll know where to find me on all the different platforms, so it's just a really way, uh, really easy way to figure out uh, how to get in touch with me. Next week, we're going to be sitting down with the queen of the Twin Cities herself. That's right, Miss Lala the Snack Luscious, as we talk about dressing and performing drag and how getting outside of yourself can actually be very liberating and great for your mental health. We are of course going to be doing all this and more while Lily and I work to convince everyone that world is wonderful. I'll see you there Thanks.